This is Jamda On The Go, your review of the content featured in Jamda, the research-focused monthly journal of AMDA, the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine. Statements made by guests on this podcast are their own opinions and are not necessarily the positions of the society. A speaker's appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them, their views, or any entity they represent. This podcast is eligible for ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits. Details will be provided at the end of this podcast. And now, here's our host for Jamda on the Go, Dr. Carl Steinberg. Welcome to Jamda on the Go for June 2023. I'm Dr. Carl Steinberg, your host for this podcast. Today, it's my pleasure to welcome one of our co-editors-in-chief of Jamda, the Journal of Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine, Dr. Barbara Resnick. We are thrilled to also have with us today one of the authors of a paper we will be reviewing and somebody that I think a lot of our listeners already know, Dr. Naushira Pandya. So Barbara Resnick, PhD, CRNP, is a professor in the Department of Organizational Systems and Adult Health at the University of Maryland School of Nursing. He teaches in the Adult Gerontological Nurse Practitioner Program and Doctoral Program and co-directs the Biology and Behavior Across the Lifespan Research Center of Excellence. She holds the Gershowitz Chair in Gerontology, does research in all settings of care, and has over 40 years of clinical practice, which is currently in assisted living and senior housing communities. Also with us is my friend, colleague, role model, and mentor, Dr. Nashira Pandya. Dr. Pandya is Professor and Chair of the Geriatrics Department at NSU Kiran C. Patel College of Osteopathic Medicine and the Project Director of the HRSA-funded NSU South Florida Geriatrics Workforce Enhancement Program, or GWEP. She's board certified in internal medicine, geriatrics, and endocrinology and metabolism. She's also a certified medical director and a geriatrics fellowship program director. And as many of our listeners know, Dr. Pandya is a past president of AMDA, the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine, a past chair of our Interdisciplinary Clinical Practice Committee, and she's participated and led in the development of multiple clinical practice guidelines and position statements over the years. She's well known for her work in the area of diabetes in the older population, and on a national level, she served as a panelist in the White House Conference on Aging and in the White House Conference on Antibiotic Stewardship. She served on the Physicians Advisory Committee for the National Quality Forum and as a member of the College of Surgery Coalition for Quality in Geriatric Surgery. She's a board member of the National Association for Geriatric Education and a member of the HHS Advisory Committee on Interdisciplinary and Community-Based Linkages. Dr. Pandya holds the distinction of being a Fulbright Senior Specialist Scholar. And Nashira continues to be actively engaged in committee work with AMDA. She's currently chairing the revision of our diabetes CPG, which uh, with all the new types of agents available will be very welcome when it's done. And anyway, that's just a little sort of a shortened version of Dr. Pandya's very impressive bio. So needless to say, we are honored to have you here on our podcast. So happy that you're still very active in promoting the work of AMDA on behalf of the post-acute and long-term care population. So welcome, Drs. Resnick and Pandya. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be here. All right. So today, your editors have chosen four articles we'll be highlighting from the June issue that we think will be of particular interest to our listeners. 
These topics include a focus on diabetes management and new ways to manage type 2 diabetes, pathways into assisted living, and different challenges across states. The third paper is a commentary on the use of automatic external defibrillators as part of CPR processes in nursing facility residents with sudden cardiac arrest. And finally, the last paper we'll be discussing is a systematic review addressing the value of multi-component cognitive training among older adults without cognitive impairment to see how that, uh, see what impact that has. So we're going to kick it off with your paper, Dr. Pandya. Your observational study on type 2 diabetes medications in post-acute and long-term care is interesting from a number of perspectives. First, in terms of how it describes current treatment of diabetes in long-term care, at least through 2020, and the high rates of hypoglycemia that occur, which is obviously of concern. Second, you raise the point in your conclusions that these data provide us with the opportunity to improve diabetes management. I do a lot of chart reviews of nursing home residents, and it is shocking to me, or actually maybe not so shocking anymore, uh, but how often people continue to be left on four times a day finger stick checks, uh, you know, sliding scale insulin, and no matter how well controlled the person may be, and no matter how poor their short-term prognosis, you know, in spite of the fact that sliding scale insulin has been on the beers list for what, 10 years or so. Uh, and another pet peeve of mine is standard orders to call for blood glucose under 60 or over 300 or even 400, right? I mean, I would hope most of our listeners who are, are physicians uh, or other practitioners would want to know if their residents who need blood glucose monitoring got even close to those levels, right? I mean, I oh, agree. Yeah, the blood sugar was only 396, doc. So uh, we didn't we didn't think we needed to call you. You know, it wasn't it wasn't 400. Um, so listeners, please consider carefully at what level you would want nursing staff to let you know. You know the levels that that you would like to to be notified of. Anyway, sorry for the long <laughs> the diatribe there. So now, Shira, maybe an obvious question, but what was your impetus for exploring this issue? Yeah. So thanks, Carl. One of the uh, reasons was the high prevalence of diabetes in long-term care. You know, the latest papers, which are probably underreporting now, uh, 25 to 34% of our patients have diabetes. We've had several studies that tell us we're over-treating patients, so oh, average A1Cs are low. However, that's at the expense of hypoglycemia. We also see large fluctuations in blood glucose control, and as you mentioned, Carl, uh, high use of sliding scale insulin. So this the impetus was to really first see with a large scale database how diabetes was being managed and to try and quantify the prevalence of hypoglycemia you know, overall per year and with what agents was this occurring most. Yeah, yeah, okay, thank you for that. Uh, and uh, what were your challenges, if any, in conducting this study? This was from a large uh, database, uh, which uh, came from the point-click care, which is a common uh, EHR, as you know, and many facilities use it. So the database was there. Obviously, the challenge was, you know, making sure we had the right group of patients in this study. We wanted to make sure they were all, in this case, type 2 diabetes patients, over 65, you know, isolating patients who had had a 100-day stay during one study year and, uh, you know, identifying exclusion uh, criteria. 
so it was a large database. And I think the challenge was really the clinical interpretation. You know, we had the numbers, but so what do we make of it? And how do we use this information to direct us further? Where should we be going now to improve diabetes treatment? Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think you uh, hit those challenges very well for, based on my reading of the paper. So uh, I guess for our listeners, what are your take-home messages and what are some practical steps that that our listeners can actually implement to improve diabetes management in our facilities? Yes. Uh, so if I may, if I can just uh, summarize a little bit of our findings, Carl. Great. Okay. So as we expected, and this is, you know, informative to uh, practitioners, we discovered that metformin was still the most common oral agent, uh, about 68%, followed by sulfonylureas, still mm-hmm. 30% of patients on it. Then DPP-4 inhibitors, thiazolidine diurons came very low, and the new SGLT2 inhibitors came at 2%. They're not obviously that new anymore. And then when we looked at injectable agents, about 53% of patients were on basal and prandial insulin. Not bad. We saw that the older the patients were, the more comorbidities they had, the higher the BMI, they were more likely to be on insulin, which sort of makes sense. Uh, But 18%, 20 to 18% were just on prandial insulin, which to me reads that they were probably just on sliding scale. That's still a significant number. And then 18% were on basal insulin. uh, And uh, there was, and there's a trend now, we're seeing an increasing use of the GLP-1 receptor agonists, either with insulin or by themselves. So, um, you know, that's what we observed. And then before uh, I talk about take-home messages, I should mention what we found in terms of hypoglycemia. So per year in the overall study population, actually 35% of patients had level one hypoglycemia, which, you know, now hypoglycemia is categorized at three levels. So level one is over 54 to less than 70 milligrams per deciliter. And the majority of those were on injectable agents. And then quite a high number, 25% had level two hypoglycemia, which is less than 54 uh, milligrams per deciliter, Mm -hmm. and about 23% needed glucagon. So the problem of hypoglycemia is still, you know, significant. Right. And I mean, those are, those are uh, measurements that are taken uh, maybe when they're just getting their routine tests, right? So imagine, exactly. imagine what they are at 3 a.m. or 5 a.m. or something exactly. like that. Exactly. And that, you know, uh, I'll talk, I can talk about this later is perhaps there's a role in some patients for continuous glucose monitoring. Yeah. Yep. Or, or at the very least, uh, occasionally checking them uh, in the middle of the night or something, mm-hmm. especially if they've got a low A1C and, and yet, you know, reasonably high levels in the day, right? Yes. Um, so to get back to your question about, uh, now that I've given you some idea of the uh, results, the take-home message is, I think that's still the same as we've said before. Still individualize your control, but try and identify the goal for each patient. And on practical terms, I try to do that when I first see a patient in my 
first note or in my subsequent visits, what my goal is for that patient uh, in terms of, you know, A1C goal or even fasting or my range of glucose control. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's, you know, uh, delineated in uh, recent, you know, reviews. And we're going to address that in the AMDA uh, revision. So identify the goal for your patient. So for instance, a, a fairly, you know, healthy person who's in for rehab for orthopedic surgery, planning to go home, uh, has few comorbidities and uh, no impairment of activities of daily living, it could still be less than 8%. Hmm. A very healthy per- person from the community, that A1C goal is still 7 to 7.5%. And then in the very debilitated long-term care patient who needs assistance with, let's say, most activities of daily living, you know, severe dementia, stroke, um, multiple chronic conditions, uh, there actually is no well-defined A1C goal for that patient. But the recommendation now is to avoid hypoglycemia and to try and stay within that range of 100 to 200. Now, you know, people could argue (laughs) about that range and individualize it. So that's one of the recommendations. And the other good things we do in long-term care still stay, you know, involve the interdisciplinary team, you know, uh, look at the facility performance of uh, diabetes management, all those recommendations still stay. And that's something we're going to address in the CPG revision. Mm-hmm. And uh, what, what if anything, would you suggest as a next step in research, you know, here in this arena of, of diabetes management? I, that's a difficult question somehow for me, um, because this research in facilities and facility change is so difficult to do, but we are trying to do that. The next step, I think, is to devise simple roadmaps that most clinicians can follow. And as we know, you know, we have physicians, nurse practitioners, PAs, many different clinicians practicing in long-term care. So can we devise a roadmap uh, for a simple therapeutic plan, taking into account, let's say, the weight, the renal function, the comorbidities, and then guide clinicians uh, as to what therapeutic, you know, choices they should make. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we can, uh, you know, actually test a simple roadmap that experts have come to a consensus with, uh, and see if that improves outcomes. And then, you know, what outcomes? I would think hypoglycemia, <laughs> ER visits, rehospitalizations. You know, any injurious outcomes or central nervous system outcomes from hypoglycemia. Those would be important to measure. Yeah, well, a roadmap like that would be great, and especially now with so many new uh, new agents available. Uh, you know, uh, what's a prescriber to do, right? So, uh, I know there's some already out there, but not not really specific to our population. So, um, and you know, we should probably not be uh, uh, thinking that oh, that's not for our population. It could be for some of our patients, and then the art is. And the signs is to select those people carefully. Yep, yep. It's all about person-centered care. So, Dr. Resnick, you highlighted this article out of this issue. What would you like to hear from Dr. Pandya about this article or or any other work pertaining to diabetes in our setting? 
Yeah, so I was really excited about this article because I think it provides a nice baseline, a nice jump off point for the coming out of the diabetes CPG, which I knew was coming down the road. And when we talk about next research as somebody who does implementation work, I'm excited about taking the CPG and Mm -hmm. testing how we can implement it, that roadmap, which is very much what CPGs are um, in in the real world. But maybe, Dr. Pandia, you could tell us a little bit, tell the audience a little bit, give them a little (laughs) preview of what's coming out in that CPG, because I think a big problem we have with diabetes as we do with many things is if it ain't broken, don't break it. Yep. Just keep them on the sliding scale. The area. Yeah. Yes. I think that's actually Dr. Resnick, the big challenge is how to get people out of that thinking that we don't have to do things like we've always done Mm -hmm. them Uh, because we somehow feel there's a safety in what we've done. Maybe if we could show people that what we're always doing is not working. We have, uh, you know, a third of patients are getting hypoglycemic. uh, And also you're doing a lot of um, uh, procedures and processes that aren't necessarily comfortable to the patient or even necessary and take a lot of nursing time. So in this um, CPG guideline, uh, what we're trying to do is first shorten the guideline. I'm passionate about that. Um, And I'm working with the team on creating a roadmap, as I mentioned earlier, on how to choose uh, medications and for what patient uh, a certain medication would be suitable. And if we can use an algorithmic approach that would guide clinicians rather than our thinking of, you know, metformin, sulfonylurea, maybe add another drug, or if they're really sick, add insulin, which is not necessarily the wrong thing to do. It's it's appropriate. So how to guide clinicians on what agent to use when in what kind of person? We're also looking to simplify treatment, not make treatment overly complex, let's say with multiple prandial shots of insulin, when perhaps basal insulin by itself is enough, or basal insulin plus a GLP-1 receptor agonist. And indeed, where we used to jump to insulin, we could, uh, to basal insulin, we could just start a GLP-1 receptor agonist. Now, you know, people worry about cost and but you know, to give a once a week shot is probably more cost effective than four AccuChecks a day and basal <laughs> insulin and sliding scale. And then we need to think about um, the, all the data that's now available that GLP-1 receptor agonists reduce cardiovascular risk and cardiovascular outcomes and the SGL and indeed progression of CKD, and particularly the SGLT2 inhibitors have been shown to reduce the progression of CKD. So we we all know intuitively, anybody who practices in long-term care, that cardiorenal problems sort of go hand in hand with somebody who's had type 2 diabetes for a long time. Um, So the skill will be in using these agents in the appropriate person 
Um, for instance, you know, using an SGLT2 inhibitor in a very frail older person who had frequent UTIs, was unable to drink fluids by themselves, uh, and had low body weight, that would not be suitable. So I hope in this guideline that we can provide um, some uh, recommendations uh, that clinicians could follow with uh, a sense of comfort. I also want to start thinking about the use of advanced technologies because patients will come to us now with insulin pumps, and they are in some facilities. They'll come to us with continuous glucose monitors. Now, does everybody need that? No. But patients who have them and have benefited from them, then staff and practitioners should become familiar with the use of that and the interpretation of data. And I myself have spent a lot of time in the clinic trying to learn this. <laughs> well, that, that is so much great information. Uh, I mean, that is a lot to digest. And, and thank you so much for that. Uh, now, Shira, any, any last thoughts that you want to share to wrap things up? Yes, I think one of our strengths in this post-acute setting is the interprofessional team. And so I feel that the role of team members, uh, the role of the facility quality improvement project uh, should not be left uh, you know, aside. So I think that's still an important part of our guideline and uh, what we do. So we want to be sure to include that. And yeah, I, I think... I just feel that um, as far as uh, for clinicians, my message would be that, you know, starting well with somebody with diabetes, regularly looking at their glucose control, uh, identifying uh, or and re-identifying goals is well worthwhile because you'll notice that they do uh, lead to an improved quality of life and improved clinical outcomes. Yeah, and I think for our medical director listeners, uh, you know, this is a perfect quality improvement type uh, project or QAPI, uh, you know, take a look at the diabetes management and, uh, you, you know, if there are other attending clinicians, prescribers in the building who could be doing better, you know, sort of gently... Uh, and if we had a roadmap to share with them, that would be even better, right? That's my ambition. I've been working for a long time on um, with... Uh, colleagues to really define a roadmap that would be simple enough uh, to follow in our setting. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for all the work you've done. And thanks for taking the time to chat with us today at uh, Jammed On The Go. Yeah, you're very welcome. Thank you for asking me to join you. All right. Keep up the great work. So the second paper is uh, by Brian Kasky, and it's called Pathways into Assisted Living Communities. Admission Limitations and Assessment Requirements Across the United States. Uh, this paper highlighted, uh, it focuses on limitations to admission in assisted living and the impact this has on the composition of residents residing within licensed assisted living communities. The research team evaluated regulations across 50 states, all 50 states, that must have been on so much fun. Uh, and over a quarter of all assisted living communities nationally were found to be governed by regulations that limited the admission of persons with specific health conditions. For example, pressure ulcers. Almost a quarter of assisted living communities uh, limited admissions based on health, specified behaviors, uh, mental health conditions, or cognitive impairment. 
And in contrast, a little over 10% of licensed assisted living communities had no regulations restricting admissions, which is a little bit scary. Uh, Anyway, this team also found that more than eight out of every 10 licensed communities were required to have residents complete a health assessment at admission, but less than half were required to complete a cognitive assessment. The variation in admission regulations implies that state agencies have created multiple licensure classifications that can serve as a mechanism for sorting types of residents into settings based on their need, like their medical conditions, mental health conditions, cognitive status, and the like. Uh, While future research should investigate the implications of this regulatory diversity, and really you've seen one state's assisted living uh, regs, you've seen one state's regs, right? Uh, But the categories outlined here may be helpful to clinicians, consumers, and policymakers to better understand the options in their state and how various assisted living licensure requirements compare to one another. Barb, uh, your, your thoughts on this? Yeah, well, as someone who's done a lot of both clinical work and research in assisted living, it, of course, is all over the place. And I, I just had to sort of chuckle every time you said, oh, licensed AL, because think about those unlicensed places uh, right. and, and what's happening. But we don't, we're, we're not going to talk about that. Um, but my, my biggest concern with all of this is that they can start with a regulation and bring people in that way. And a number one, it should be based on what that facility has the capability to care. Uh, right, right, of course. Uh, on an individual and group basis. But the bigger problem is these folks age in place. And increasingly, we're seeing, I mean, we're providing hospice services in assisted living, helping people stay in that setting so that they can walk into heaven from that setting. Right. And there needs to be some flexibility here. And so I I think increasingly in the future, we're going to see more and more about that. Um, It's it's scary what happens. But then, you know, think about home care and, you know, families provide care to patients sometimes well beyond when they're able to do so. And there's no regulation around that. So. We, we have a lot of work in this area, and um, I really like this article because it raised the concerns, raised the discussion, and I anticipate over the next few years, we're going to hear and see a lot more about it. Yeah, yeah, and I, I think uh, it would be lovely if there were more consistency among the states, right? Uh, <laughs> in the same way that I wish we had, a, you know, a single uh, sort of pulsed, mulsed, uh, colst, whatever, you know, the, those types of forms, uh, you know, order sets. But I agree with you. And as an example, in California, years ago, if an assisted living resident developed a stage three pressure ulcer or beyond, even if it was tiny, basically they had to be shipped to the hospital or or transferred to a nursing home, essentially being evicted. Uh, and th- this was even if they were like in the last couple of days of life, you know, receiving hospice services and so on. They would just basically be uprooted um, because of this regulation. And thankfully, that changed some years back where, uh, you know, 
the that prohibited or excluded condition of having a stage three pressure ulcer is waived for people if they're on hospice. But I'm sure our listeners are well aware of what transfer trauma can do to already frail, compromised elders and just uprooting them from what has been their home sometimes for years just seems categorically cruel and wrong. I mean, of course, on the other hand, it's important that people receive appropriate care for their conditions, just like you said. I mean, they have to be able to meet the person's needs. Uh, And sometimes there is no choice but to relocate a person to a more medicalized setting like a nursing home. But uh, what are your thoughts on that? Are you on mute? Most of the relocation needs as well, interestingly, um, tends to be on behavioral issues. And that's why another trend we're seeing in the world of assisted living, which wasn't addressed in this paper, is on the um, uh, dementia-specific facilities so that they are locked facilities Mm -hmm. and it's a safer environment. And again, this is a growing industry and something we'll see more about. But, you know, it should be almost individualized by setting as well. Being able to demonstrate that your staff have the skills to provide the care needed. And the other thing I'm just going to throw out there is that we need to think about scope of practice nationally and expand scope of practice for what some of the staff in these settings can do. We currently don't have enough nurses to provide the care needed in nursing homes, acute care, let alone assisted living. And so we need to think about what um, the care providers who sometimes are not even certified nursing assistants can do in these settings. Yep, you're absolutely right. The sort of med techs and other, other you mm-hmm. know, personal care assistants, or you know, they're called different things in different states. But you are right. Where are we going to find these bodies, Barb? I, I don't know. And the it's really the scope. And these are people I always laugh. Many of them are diabetic themselves, and they know better than most of us what to do with diabetes. Yet they can't give insulin. <laughs> you know, it, it's, yeah. it's almost funny. Uh, yeah. But I, I. I think and I hope and I know it's an area I've been working on is we we need to think about scope and just demonstrating skill, maybe even going back to apprenticeship programs. Mm -hmm. Lots of exciting stuff. But I think this paper was great because it raised the issue. Yeah, thank you for that. All right. So we're going to move on to our third paper by Dr. Rebecca Elon. And this one is called Cardiac Resuscitation Procedures in United States Nursing Facilities, Time to Reevaluate the Standard of Care, question mark. And I think uh, probably the answer to that uh, that Rebecca would say would be clearly yes. Anyway, it's an absolutely terrific controversy and care article. Uh, And and Rebecca Elon is a geriatrics legend whom some of our listeners may remember was on our March in-person podcast focused on should we or should we not provide CPR in nursing homes uh, and should that be with or without the use of AEDs? Dr. Elon notes that in the general population, it's estimated that approximately 20% of initial recorded rhythms 
in sudden cardiac arrest are V-fib or pulseless VTAC, which are recognizable and shockable rhythms for AEDs. The rate of these shockable rhythms, though, is expected to be significantly lower in a long-term care facility type setting, um, you know, where people have multiple comorbidities and are just generally more frail. Uh, further, and not surprisingly, the presence of multiple comorbidities is associated with poorer outcomes with CPR, even with the use of an AED. So despite procedure, despite uh, controversies surrounding the efficacy, outcomes and appropriateness of cardiac resuscitation procedures in nursing facilities, you know, the conditions of participation for Medicare, uh, you know, for all nursing homes require that that nursing facilities that receive any federal funding from uh, Medicare or Medicaid, quote, provide basic life support, including cardiopulmonary resuscitation to a resident requiring such emergency care prior to the arrival of emergency medical personnel and subject to related physician orders and the resident's advanced directives, unquote. So Dr. Elon strongly advocates for more data in U.S. nursing homes prior to making CPRs with uh, making CPR with AEDs in the building required because it may result in more harm than benefit. Uh, and uh, I mean, very few nursing home residents who suffer a, a full cardiac arrest, um, you know, survive it. And uh, even less if you if you consider people who have unwitnessed arrests. Uh, so she encourages facilities to do their own QI projects around this and address these four items. One, the facility's current processes for determining and documenting code status. Two, processes and outcomes of their current BLS CPR procedures. Three, what's considered the community standard of care in you know wherever they are. And lastly, the needs and wishes of the population being served by the facility. Uh, so that's, uh, that's a lot and I think, um, one thing this article didn't specifically talk about is, you know, when nurses have to do CPR on a, you know, 75 pound, uh, 100 year old patient, and that's, it's maybe traumatic for the patient, but they're probably unconscious, but um, it's traumatic for the staff too. Uh, anyway, Barb, what are your comments on this? Yeah, so I also really like this paper. As uh, usual, Dr. Elad does a great job of raising controversies in care. And this is an ethical issue as well. I will tell you, Carl, some data actually shows there's 0% chance of recovery mm -hmm. uh, if you're over the age of 80 and get exposed to CPR, not um, not AED related, but just CPR. Um, and I, I agree with Dr. Elam, we do need more data. Unfortunately, television displays a very romantic picture of CPR. You wake up, you have your makeup is all in place, your hair is in place, and you're you're ready to roll. And we all know that that is not going to be the case. And I, I think we need to teach people and really maybe make a video of what CPR would look like in with an AED in a nursing home setting, not in ER on Gray's Anatomy, <laughs> uh, but really in the nursing home. I even worry because in all honesty, 
hospitals have teams with expertise in how you run a code. Can you, uh, I mean, it's very difficult. It's a different skill set than we have. And unless we were practicing this every day, I don't think it's going to be pretty. No, no. And of course, in a hospital, you're much more likely to be in a monitored bed and have sort of a witness to rest where people can can uh, start things fast, which absolutely impacts prognosis. You know, uh, Angelo Volandes and his group, ACP Decisions, have done extensive research using video tools uh, and they have CPR on a mannequin, you know, Mm -hmm. to help people make informed decisions about whether to request CPR in the event of a full cardiac arrest. Uh, so, and, and years ago I was like, you should just show a real video, you know? And then, uh, uh, you know, and he said, you know, we have, we have real life videos, but, uh, he told me they thought it was too gruesome for most lay people to be able to stomach, you know, with the sound of the ribs cracking and so on. And, and just, you know, the, the real ugliness, the violence of it. Um, and, uh, they just felt that that would be too, uh, you know, it would be too much. Um, but I know there was a study in JAMDA uh, within the last year or so, I think it was out of Japan, where the survival rate of witness arrest with AED availability was really good, like maybe 20% if I'm off the top of my head. And of course, that's not necessarily a return to baseline. That's just survival to hospitalization. But in our facilities, how often do we have witness arrests, right? And, and some people again you're saying zero percent i mean i i'm sure it's under one percent uh but some people believe that based on those survival rates cpr should be considered medically non-beneficial or what we used to call futile uh treatment and not even offered i I think you know we're a long way from that in our country but uh i personally cannot think of a single nursing home resident in my 30 years of practice in this setting who suffered a full arrest in the nursing home, got CPR, and came back to the nursing home alive. Have you? No, so I'm going to throw in 40 years of practice and Uh absolutely um, never seen it in a nursing home patient. I did have a patient that was exposed to CPR. I wasn't there, Um, but that patient did not survive. And um, he was a physician and it was what he wanted yeah, he, he didn't survive. And um, Carl, I believe it was you who raised that it was very, very traumatic for staff. And they they just had a hard time with the whole experience. So it is something to think more about. And I think families, patients, and, and consumers need to understand more about what CPR with or without AED involves and what's going to happen at the end, particularly in people who already have some cognitive impairment. Yeah, yeah. Well, great. Uh, So uh, we'll move on to our last paper. Uh, This is by Leonardo Santos Lopez de Silva, and it is called, it's a long title, does multi-component training improve cognitive function in older adults without cognitive impairment? A systematic review and meta-analysis of randomized controlled trials. So uh, this is like it sounds, it's a systematic review and meta-analysis, and it only included randomized controlled trials in older adults without cognitive impairment, right? So they could not have dementia, Alzheimer's, MCI, uh, you know, uh, neurodegenerative diseases, and so on. 
So 10 randomized control trials were included in this review, out of which six, which involved 166 participants, were compiled in the meta-analysis of random effects models. The mini mental state examination and the Montreal Cognitive Assessment, or MOCA, were used to assess global cognitive function. The trail-making test, uh, uh, A and B domains, was also performed in four studies. So, Dr. Resnick, what do we learn from this? Are you on mute? You're on mute. So compared with the control group, the multi-component training increased the global cognitive function of participants. And uh, for the trial uh, test, the multi-component training decreased the time to perform those tests. The Petro scale for the studies in this review ranged from seven to eight. So there was good methodology methodological quality. And most of the studies were judged low in terms of risk of bias. The team at the end of the day concluded that the multi-component training improved cognitive function in older adults without cognitive impairment. And they surmised that it was a possible protective effect of multi-component training for cognitive function in older adults. I mean, I found this study to be interesting, in a sense, confirming that, yet again, we know that brain stimulation is a good way to prevent dementia. You sit in a white room and don't do anything, you got a greater chance of uh, getting some dementia. But I think we need to think still about the long-term impact of some of these interventions. We've seen, I think, repeatedly that with many of these brain simulation uh, or stimulation games that the program, once the programs end, the benefits disappear. And so I, I think there's a lot more um, work to be done about actual prevention of dementia, despite the fact that everybody in the world likes to think that if they do their crossword puzzles or whatever, they're, they're going to prevent dementia. Uh, yeah, you know, one thing, uh, this study, uh, the study, the p-values were pretty remarkable on some of mm -hmm. the, uh, you know, that that uh, I found that impressive. And uh, obviously, I've seen other studies that suggest that specific brain exercises on a dedicated ongoing basis can forestall dementia or prevent it. And uh, so I'm, I'm kind of hoping that playing words with friends and boggle with friends counts for me. Uh, I, I plan on, you know, I'm, I'm not going to let that lapse, right? Uh, uh, physical exercise, I'm not so good. But uh, anyway, uh, I'm going to ask, what do you do to keep your brain busy, Barb? <laughs> Even though I already know, I know how much you work on academically with the editorship, uh, but I, I mean, do you have other sort of brain games or brain exercises that you do? So I'm absolutely not a brain game person, I will say that. And one of the things that we do know is that you should be doing things that are not easy for you. So that's the other thing. It's stretching your brain. And I would say that's my focus still. I have, despite being past retirement age, I have no intention to retire. And some of that is because it does give me the ability to continue to stretch, to learn new statistical techniques, uh, new types of research, 
to learn new things from students. So I, I would say that's my brain stimulation. And I am there on the physical activity. Uh, but I think there's many benefits to that besides brain health. Like we, we have to think of it all together. And yeah. there, there probably are many components from aging, overall health, and probably the biggest issue is still cardiovascular disease. So keep keep doing what's a challenge for you. I think that would be the conclusion from this paper. Good advice. Good advice from from Jamda. And uh, so, all right, listeners, we're so glad you're here with us on Jamda on the Go. And we hope you also are doing lots of active brain exercise, right? <laughs> this is a little passive. You're just listening to us jibber jabber. And uh, so, uh, you know, get busy doing something that stretches your brain. Oh, yeah. And physical exercise, too. <laughs> so, that's going to wrap it up for this Jamda on the Go podcast. And uh, it went a little long, uh, but uh, we had a lot to cover. So under the leadership of our co-editors-in-chief, Drs. Paul Katz and Barbara Resnick, and with hard work from our whole team of associate editors, reviewers, and preeminent authors like Dr. Pandya, JAMDA, the Journal of Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine, continues to be an influential resource in post-acute and long-term care geriatrics and beyond. Please take a look at the June 2023 issue. Also, remember to check out our other AMDA On The Go family of podcasts, including Caring On The Go, which I also host. And I'd like to finish up by thanking Drs. Resnick and Pandya again for sharing their time and expertise with Jamda on the go today. Thanks, Barb. And references for this podcast can be found at www.jamda.com. Until next time, I'm Dr. Carl Steinberg for Jamda on the go. If you are a physician, and interested in obtaining ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits for certification or recertification, visit paltc.org slash podcast.